This is the Branches Podcast. We try to keep it simple in this family of faith. Love God and love people. Let's not make it harder than Jesus intended. If you'd like to know more about our community of faith, you can visit us at branchesoc.com. So this is one of those awkward moments or mornings for me because it always feels weird transitioning from worship into teaching. I was asked to preach this morning. Uh, Boog's out of town. He's on one of his man trips or boys trips, something that he does with his buddies. And um, originally, it made sense that he'd asked that I would talk on worship, on uh, something that's pretty near and dear to my heart and what I do here. And as I got into the preparation and started digging into what I would do, I felt like I, I couldn't give it um, enough justice. And I kept coming back to this passage in Matthew, and I kept coming back to the Sermon on the Mount and the ways in which I've been deeply formed over the last year or so through the Lord's Prayer. And I wanted to talk about the Lord's Prayer with you this morning, which sounds um, really rudimentary, right? Sounds like, oh gosh, don't, maybe I'm assuming that we all know it. Um, maybe some of you have never read it. Maybe it's not part of your rhythms of the how you have prayer together with you and the Lord, or if it's not something that you, you utilize in your daily life. Um, I'm hoping that as we're deep into January and probably already past some of your New Year's resolutions and maybe through already breaking some of them, hoping to start maybe like a new New Year's resolution and having the Lord's Prayer act as some fuel and some motivation for that. So um, probably the first time you're going to have a message start with this song, but I'm going to play you a song and um, I'll get to why that is but it's probably something that's super familiar. And I, my guess is, is that there isn't anybody here who doesn't know who this is. Come gather around people wherever you roam. Who already knows, right? Then admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. So as you're hearing this, like what, what images come to mind? If your time yeah, that's right. I have the 60s. What else? You better start swimming or sink Yell it out. War? Vietnam? Maybe like an Oliver Stone movie? Or like, uh, yeah, something like that? I love this song. I love Bob Dylan. Um, I'm playing this because Bob Dylan never intended to be a protest writer. And he wrote this well before, really, the, the meat of Vietnam. It's 1964, and his song's Blown in the Wind, Time is a Changing, The Times They Are a Changing is this song. Um, he's been interviewed because it became the uh, rally cry for marches, for anti-Vietnam, for social change, for racial strife. For His songs kind of ended up becoming the things people were swaying to as it got into all of the strike that was happening from 1964 all the way into 1972, 73. And he's mercurial and weird, Bob Dylan is, and also was really hoping to not be the spokesperson for all of what was happening in social change. But the reality is, is his songs, he, he no longer claimed uh, ownership over those. They, they had been given to the people, right? And the people had taken the songs and had become their anthems for a movement, for something that was happening in the world. And uh, he was interviewed, and there was a book that was written by, uh, what was the gal's name? Linsky. And 
You may remember he was an acoustic guy. He went to the Newport Folk Festival in 1965 and started playing electric guitars, and people were throwing stuff at him. And it was like he had betrayed the world because he went electric. And um, he was just trying to be himself. But after that, the book that came out where Linsky quotes saying, um, Bob Dylan was trying to argue in the book that he never intended to start a movement, never intended them to be protest songs, just intended them to be poetic expressions of what his views of the world looked like. And then in the book says, as the author speaking to Dylan says, you know you've lost ownership of these songs and their nuances. The songs are already a part of history, burned into the fabric of civil rights movement and controlled now by the people who make them their protest songs. And that's what happens with music and art and poetry and things like that, is that it's, a, it's aesthetically charged and it, it is something that is, ends up becoming part of the rhythms of our motivations and part of the, the rhythms of our memories and our lives. And I think Jesus knowing this as human, as being aesthetic, and us being made in God's image as being bearers of that artistry and creativity knows that when the apostles are with him and they're getting deep into some of his more heavy teachings, and I think probably looking around saying, you ask him, you ask him, no, you ask him. And one of them comes the brave one to say, well, then I'm, I'm hearing all this stuff, Jesus. So teach us to pray. That's the question they ask. And the reason why I jumped here instead of on worship is because there's so little that Jesus says within the New Testament, his ministry, around worship. There is enough, certainly enough to talk about, but so little specifically, other than I'm changing everything. And there is so much that is very, very practical around prayer. Now, we've been in a series about the habits of Jesus. The book started off with the habits of Jesus being secluded away and, and carving out time alone. And then we moved into Jesus in prayer and his habits of, of being a part of prayer. And that's when you guys were texting in questions and we were talking about how much time and what prayer looks like and all that stuff. Last time, uh, we were in the habits of uh, Jesus being a part of church community and synagogue in life. And I'm piggybacking back to prayer because what we didn't have time to get to is the very specific teaching that Jesus has on prayer. Because it's, um, it's not confusing or... Uh, it's, it's not like so many of his stories, and it's certainly not like a parable. I think when he was answering the question, pray like this, he wasn't giving a, a clue or a cryptic message. He was being very forthright. But he was doing it artistically. He was doing it in a song or in poetry. So where Bob Dylan did not intend to start a movement, did not intend to be a, a figurehead, did not intend for his music to be something that triggers thoughts and motivations too. And music does that. It, it perpetuates a movement. It gives fuel to perpetuate people moving forward. He did not intend to do that, but it became that anyways. I, I fully believe that Jesus did. Jesus did intend to start a movement. He did intend for his artistry to be used as a way to start a movement, and he did intend for us to take his answer to how do we pray seriously. To say, well, this is it. This is how we should pray. I also don't think that he was giving us medicine for ourselves, but I think in his humanity, he was giving us his rhythms, his song that was the rhythms that he used, knowing that he in his own humanity too would need these things to reinforce into his soul to make it so that his life was marked by the movement and marked by the motivation and marked by the, the forces that, that God was using in and through the earth. So I want to start by reading it. Let's all stand together. Well, I'll read it out loud. 
Can everybody see it? All right, good. We'll start together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You can be seated. Um, pray for us. Lord, help us together navigate what it is to connect with you in prayer, to understand what you mean by this poetry and this artistic expression of what it is to pray. We know, Spirit, that it's only through you that you can guide us into right understanding and, and knowing really what to do with this. So help us to step aside. and I pray that you would just move into our thoughts and our affections and our hearts and all that is true in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, like much of my life, and especially in ministry, I, I stand on the shoulders of people much more um, equipped than I am when it comes to biblical scholarship or even teaching. Um, and so, like I taught last time, my hope is that I sit alongside you shoulder to shoulder and I say, let's seek this together. What I don't want to have is a posture of authority over this church or congregation over this passage because it's too much and too big for me to say, I have something to give you that you don't yet have. My goal is to say, let us together seek what this looks like and find together as opposed to me transacting in truth telling you this is this is something that I'm giving you so my hope is that we can explore and navigate this together and that we together can make this no longer the deep irony that I think that it's become is kind of dead liturgy right how many of you utilize the Lord's Prayer in your daily devotion I know this is asking you to be brave but how many of you are utilizing the, the Lord's Prayer in some form of devotion or prayer life or rhythms of your time with the Lord Nice. There's a few of you. There's a few of you. And I think that's pretty common. In fact, I, the fact that there was like four or five, I think, is actually even high. I bet if I went to so many other churches and asked that question, it'd be 90-some percent would go, I, I know it. I may have memorized it. Maybe something that I'm aware of, but it's just not part of my rhythms of life. And I don't think that's what Jesus intended. And that's the irony behind it, is that unlike, again, Bob Dylan, who didn't intend for things to become conjuring of images and motivating factors for movement. Jesus did. So how do we use this in the way that Jesus intended it to be used? So let's break it down. It's structured as a poem. And I think that this poem is reflecting the greatest commandment. And it really, should be really clear to us as church, because what is branches MO? Say it out loud. Love God, love people. And what is that based off of? The greatest commandment. Right? Love the Lord your God, Father, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And basically, love everybody else the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is broken down, the Lord's Prayer, as a way to, to I think, sum up the entirety of Jesus' ministry and the entirety of the motivating force behind what it is to be a Christian. Love God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It seems Jesus knows we need this structure to orient our daily lives around the reality of who Jesus is and what God's doing. And I think it's intentional. So let's go one by one. And we start with our Father in heaven. Interestingly enough, 
Jesus is fairly unique in calling God Father. There were some rabbinical teachings and there were some, uh, there were some writings certainly that reference God as Father historically, even prior to Jesus' time, but very rarely, in fact. And the majority of Jesus' reference to God is as Father, which would have been unique. It would not have been the common words used. It would not have been the, the vernacular they would have been talking about at that time. So even in this opening line, Jesus is, is reorienting the disciples when saying, Our Father. The motivating force there is not the absentee landlord version of God that so many of us believe to be true, that there is this God who set things into motion, is distant and far away. But Jesus is trying to motivate us into seeing him as Father. Now that's a loaded image, right? Not, not a lot of us have really awesome relationships with our dads, but some of us do. And it's unfortunate because the family structure really is designed to be the microcosm of what it is to truly be known and belong and love, but we, we mess it up. And it's Jesus trying to redeem that image to say that this idea of coming to him not so much as uh, God, separate and away, but Father is near and dear. And if that's hard for you because of your relationship with the Father, I get it. Or with your dad, I get it. And I think Jesus does too. And so I think that the ministry that he would have the church be is a continued expression of the fatherly love to each other. My hope is that branches becomes a place where young men can be fathered in ways that they may not have been historically. And that as we love each other, we are a reflection of God's love. And the only way that we can and are that is through the spirit dwelling within us to be a place where we can each other love so well that it is a true reflection of who God is. That's the motivating force. So that when others think of father or think of the term of being fathered, what they receive are images of what it is to be loved when they've been loved well. And if you haven't and don't know what that's like, then I would just say talk to, to Boog and I and let's just talk. Let's talk through that, what that means, what that is, what that could look like to be loved the way a father ought love. But even in his opening line of being unique, and then it gets into some archaic language, hallowed be your name. It's not an expression we use other than like at Halloween, right? Old Hallow's Eve. Nobody says hallowed anymore. It's... Um, it's a derivative of holy, which is also then a derivative of its set-apartness, being different, being altogether unique, being totally, totally separate. And I think of it more as the idea of something being hallowed. You talk about hallowed ground, or we talk about something being set apart and unique. I think Jesus knows that there's a uniqueness to God, and it's he has been made common, or worse, even undesirable. I think that's what's been happening. That's what happened in his time. It's certainly happening now. The idea of the name of God becoming not just common, but, but altogether detestable, even. The idea of God. And hallowed being a sense of, I think Jesus knows our motivation is to, to view God rightly for who he is, not the winds of what's blowing, of what's happening. And, and I brought something to help uh, reinforce this. It's really only super helpful for those who are into guitar. I used even a guitar analogy last time. I apologize. It's part of who I am. This is a Gibson guitar. 
It's a Gibson Les Paul. This is probably 40 years old. I forget the exact year. I should know that. As a guitar guy, everybody knows those things, but what year it is. I've had this uh, most of my life. I toured around playing music with this. This has been in every major city in the United States and United States. I've played a lot of rock and roll on this. It's a rock and roll guitar. Its origins go back to the Les Paul, the rock and roll originator, and he um, made this guitar for himself as a way to expand his music, and it became like the premier and most iconic guitar probably of all time is this guitar. There's many versions of it. There'd be some debate on that. And then Gibson um, started to suck. And they started making things in China. They were made in America, in Nashville, and in Memphis. They started to um, become so bad that it was too risky to buy a Gibson guitar without having had it either properly set up or having had somebody actually review it first because the quality control was so bad that by the time it was like the 90s, they were doing funky things and putting robot tuners on the back and changing the, like this, the ergonomics of it. And um, it became a thing where if you were like, somebody said, I bought a Gibson online from a guitar player, you'd go, mm. chances are it's gonna be crap. The name had been dragged through the mud for justifiable reasons. And the hollowedness of Gibson guitars needed to be restored. They eventually went bankrupt. And then the PR now is all of Gibson trying to, and all of their advertising and marketing and all the things that's going out is trying to hearken back to the hollowed nature of Gibson. We are the originators of rock and roll. Les Paul was this iconic character. We, we are probably the most iconic guitar of all time. You're getting into a true Americana history, all that stuff. Its name was hollowed and it no longer was. And I think Jesus is using that idea of hallowedness, of saying, God, hallowed be your name, to re-elevate what, what our temptation is always to make it common or lowly or um, even unmysterious. And there's a sense of wonder and mystery in God's name that he's pressing us into with hallowed be your name. And he moves on, on thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I've highlighted those yours because you'll notice there's this neat little structure of three parts. Focusing on God, first love God. Focusing on the us and our on the second part, right? Moving down to the us and ours. So it's these three little sections with loving God and loving people. It's as if it was an intentional poetic structure. And I think one of the reasons why we're starting on the love God section of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is that um, you can jump to the next slide, Zeke. I grew up with this uh, idea. This was probably permeating most of the churches at the time. This is basically saying you and I are on earth, the green ones in humanity. And Jesus is coming from heaven into the green stuff to get us out of earth and into heaven, right? Is what this exchange is happening, this transaction. And it's dead wrong. This is not what's happening. This is not what Jesus has done. But it's how we talk about it, right? And it became popular because of things like Left Behind and these weird 80s stuff and uh, the late great planet Earth. And there's all kinds of writings that ended up making it so that we really felt like Jesus's goal was to invade Earth, save all of us, and get us the hell out of here. Right? And um, it's not what's happening. What's happening is this next slide. When he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And if I ask the question, ha has the kingdom come? 
Got some no's, got some yeses. Has the kingdom come? Yeah, there's some. Not according to the old. Jorge says no. Nancy says yes. Jesus is wanting to remind us the answer is yes. Yes, the kingdom has come in the form of Jesus. Is it fully permeating the prophecies of the Old Testament or the lion laying down with the lamb? No. No. It's not happening. But yes, the kingdom has come. And Jesus' ministry is not to come in and get us out. His ministry, as if, as if we could drive God out of the earth, as if what happened in humanity is the fall that we drove God out and Jesus is coming back. But the, the world, earth, is being redeemed down to its fabric of its DNA and into the atomic level, the earth is being renewed and redeemed. And the kingdom coming in Jesus is a progressive movement of Jesus restoring all things unto himself, here, here and now. So when we talk about your will be done, the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus permeates earth and brings heaven here, not we go out, is what's happening. It's as if Jesus is actually coming to get the hell out of earth. Because so much of what's here is hell. It's hell on earth in some places. And Jesus' ministry is not removing us from this, but restoring and redeeming here. He is coming here. His, his will be done. And when we're praying that in the Lord's Prayer, he's asking us to connect with, this is what's happening. I'm coming through Jesus to restore all things. Now, when we ask, the, it, it's hard because I think, gosh, I don't, it's so hard to think of the already and not yet, that we're in between. But when I would ask, like, I'll ask Rich because I can be brave on Rich. Rich is the Holy Spirit in your life. Is the Holy Spirit indwelling within you? Are you fully redeemed by the Holy Spirit? Are, are you fully sanctified now? Does the Holy Spirit govern the entirety of every decision you make? Ah, uh, I'll answer for you. No. I know, Rich. The answer is no. You know? I'm messing with you. Yeah, no. And that's why we are also part of that progressive restoration. Yes, I believe that when we are knowing Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in and a part of me, the idea of being in Christ. In Branches, we talk about that John 15 passage a lot of, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. Where does the branch and vine separation start or begin or end? When there is a branch and then a vine, where is there no longer branch and where is there vine? It's this mysterious, inseparable union that we have with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Yes, I would say, I have the Spirit in me. But am I fully, am I fully redeemed and sanctified the way the, the, the Old Testament would talk about or the way that Jesus would talk about the restoration of all things? No, I'm in process, right along with Rich, as are you. We are in process and in between. But my prayer, when I read the Lord's Prayer, is that I, I want your kingdom come in my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done in me as part of this progressive restoration of all things, knowing that his promise to fulfill that is good. He's good for it, and it's working, and it's happening. That's the first part of the poem. That's the love God part of our branches, love God, love others. The love others section is broken down into three sections, daily bread, forgiveness, and deliverance. We can go back to that uh, Lord's Prayer, Zeke. 
So when Jesus is asking us to focus our attention on daily bread, give us today our daily bread. I think it's intentional that he didn't use me. He's perfectly capable of saying me. Jesus was perfectly capable of saying, give me today my daily bread, but he doesn't. He's focusing the us and our intentionally. There's no, there's no missteps. Nothing is wasted here with Jesus. So the us and our is on purpose. Focusing our attention, the fact that it is not the individualistic faith that the American Christianity has made it over centuries and centuries and centuries about your personal relationship with Jesus. I think a damaging term that we've used, my relationship with Jesus. Jesus's ministry was always the we relationship with Jesus, the community of us. That there isn't this individual personal thing that I have, there is a communal aspect to our relationship, and the us and our is part of this. Give us today our daily bread. What marked the early church after Pentecost? So the Holy Spirit comes down after they were waiting for the Holy Spirit for so many days, and finally the, the church is launched. So in Acts, after Pentecost, Jesus has left, the Holy Spirit has come, the New Testament church is launched, and what marked those people? They were marked by a few things. Prayer, the apostles' teachings, and sharing of resources, is what it says. They were intensely communal and corporate together. In the sense of, I have something, somebody else doesn't, it was only natural that that became a shared resource thing, that we together are lifting each other up. But when we think of it as ours, mine, my stuff, when we think of people only deserving of our cumulative support if they've made the right decisions, right? You've got to be worthy of my charity, all that stuff. It's bogus. It's not what Jesus meant by this. And so I think even in this, give us today our daily bread. He's focusing on the community we. And then what's another story that we can think of around daily bread? I can think of one. What was happening after the exile from Egypt of the Israelites in the desert? They were hungry. I don't know that desert particularly well, but I know our deserts. I know it's not particularly uh, full of available resources, food. And they were hungry. And the Lord provided. He gave them manna, or manna as it's translated, which I think is literally translated what with a question mark. Or some say, what is it? What? is like manna, bread from heaven. And the Lord provided these weird crystalline things uh, that I, I don't really know what that really would look like, but it would perish after the day. And his idea was to say, don't store up more than you need for right now, because whatever it's left over, it's going to go bad. They would store it up anyways. It's still an exercise in trust. It was still like, yeah, I get it, but I'm going to keep a little of this leftover. And he's like, there's always going to be enough. There will always be enough. Don't store up enough. There will always be enough. I will provide tomorrows. And even in that, this picture beautifully of the Israelites being in between where they were in captivity and where they were going in promised land is, again, this beautiful poetic narrative of what we're in now. We are in between, like Rich and I, in process. We are where we are now, which is not where we will be, yet we're being asked again, like the Israelites, and Jesus is focusing our attention on shared resources and saying, give us today our daily bread. Now, I don't think any of us here are in question of where our next meal will come from. Certainly, Jesus was preaching to people who would have had a, a question over, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. 
without a doubt, there would have been people that were following Jesus that if you were to ask them, where's my next meal coming from, they would say, I don't know. Or potentially, I won't have one. So what does that say about us? I think all the more this is, this is harder for us and all the more needed, all the more needed to say, how do I reorient my mind around um, the tight-fisted nature that I won't say the we, I'll say I, because I'm, I'm not placing myself over you, I'm saying me. I need to reorient myself from this to this. And the temp temptation to be like, ah, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need more, I need, I need more. And the more successful that I've been, the easier it is to rest on my ability to out-earn foolishness. That's easy to do. As a guy, guys struggle with that. I've done that. I've had, I've had the history of making the mistake of out-earning my trust in the Lord. And so I think cultivating a mindset like a day laborer or a beggar, which my, my hope is that nobody's had to be in that position, but cultivating a mindset of what it's like to be a beggar is what Jesus is asking us to do. No coincidence at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he says the first words of that Sermon on the Mount are what? This is a real hard test. Who remembers? What does Jesus say as the first thing as he's launching his most seminal sermon of all time? Blessed are the poor. It's not a coincidence. He has a lot to say about our stuff. And all of it, all of it is focusing our attention on every good gift coming from the Lord, that it's not mine. And there is a certain kind of blessedness that we receive when we cultivate a mindset of the poor and when we look out for one another. Daily bread. The next section is on forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, Jesus' view of forgiveness is not ignoring it or condoning it. I think Jesus' view of forgiveness is much like Matthew 6.14, naming it, drawing attention to the sins and the hurts. But the one thing I think he's trying to get us into the rhythms of in our daily habit, and the one wrong thing in the world, one of many things, is that we keep, we keep asserting our rights to get even. We are very much fixated, even in America, on our rights. These are my rights. And I'm not vilifying all of what is some of the political movements to be able to make sure that America stays the way that people think it ought to be, whatever that means to you. I just mean that one of the ways Jesus is countercultural is to say that um, he is asking us as believers that sometimes what it means to follow Jesus is to fold the winning hand which is the hardest thing for us to do. Sometimes it's asking us to forgive the way that we've been forgiven. And I want to be sure to use the strong language as Jesus does. In Matthew, he says, if you refuse to forgive, God will not forgive you. That's a heavy passage, isn't it? We like to gloss over that. And I want to take it at face value. Jesus saying, if you refuse to forgive. Now, he doesn't say if you struggle, or if you take time, 
or if it's a difficult process. But if you refuse, there are consequences. I'm thinking of a story of a woman who was in Auschwitz whose family was killed by a particularly heinous guard. And she was preaching then after the liberation and World War II being over. Her family had been killed in the, in the concentration camps. And as she was sharing her story, the guard who was responsible for the death of her sister, I believe, not the entire family, but was in the back and feeling the weight of the Holy Spirit and the compelling nature of God to follow him comes forward to ask for forgiveness from the Lord and for her after the sermon. And reaches out his hand, I think trembling, saying, I'm so sorry, can you forgive me to this gal? And she writes in her book, everything in her was saying, no, no. Do I forgive you? The answer is no, I don't forgive you. It's everything in her bones, down to her core. I think she was seething, understandably, right? I can't fathom what that would be like. I can't understand it. I don't know. But something came over her, the Holy Spirit, where she said she felt this compelling nature to reach out. And she even uses the expression, with a wooden hand, robotically, woodenly, says, okay. And the moment that the forgiveness is offered and she shakes his hand, she felt the overwhelming presence of Jesus in her life, making what she was doing out of duty then become delight acting her way into a feeling instead of feeling her way into an action. I think God is asking us, when it's hard, I'm asking you to act your way into a feeling, but not feel your way into actions. Forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. And this aspect of forgiveness is one of the hardest things, hardest things in the world to do. But as you're thinking even now, over where it is that your forgiveness is needing to be offered to others, I'd encourage you to wrestle with that, knowing that Jesus very rarely used language this straightforward and hard, that if we refuse to forgive, he returns that in kind. It's a big deal. Finally, deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Again, using the us and our, we're still in the love others part, from love God to love people. And when uh, Jesus uses the term, lead us not into temptation, what does that mean? Is he leading us into temptation? Do we have this narrative of, of being led by God into temptation? No. When you get that out of your minds, is the idea that we're being led by temptation. But it's the language that was used when Jesus was led into temptation. Can you think of, of situations where Jesus was led into temptation? I can think of two. I'm thinking of the, of the wilderness when he's launching his ministry for 40 days, being led into the wilderness, into temptation, and in the Garden of Eden. I'm sorry, Garden of Gethsemane, where he was led into temptation. And one of the things that marked both of those situations was Jesus not sinning, but being honest with himself and saying, I don't want this. When he's praying before God in the garden, sweating blood, anxious, having basically a panic attack of sorts around what's to come, knowing the crucifixion's coming, he's praying to God, not as some like uber savior where he has strength to be able to put the bumper sticker on and be like, everything's gonna be okay. I mean, he knows what's happening, but he's still praying to the Lord saying, 
I don't want this. And was he wrong for praying that? No, because he doesn't sin. He's perfect. So he gives us this model of it's okay to pray to the Lord by saying, this is something that I think that is good, but I don't want it. This is hard. I don't want this. Yet, Jesus responds, yet, not my will, but your will be done. It's this mystery of saying, God, I'm confessing to you. You already know it. I don't want it, but I'm surrendering my will to you. But I'm making, my, I'm making it known, and, it, and it's as if God's saying, yeah, that's good. Now we're getting down to, now we're being honest, aren't we? Now we're getting down to something. It's the prayers that we think we're supposed to pray that I think are meaningless. It's the prayers that we think we're supposed to say is what Jesus, I think, when he was talking about looking in the town square and looking out and saying, see those rabbis and see those Pharisees praying in the town square with the jesters and all those big things, the hoopla? Don't be like that. Go into your room, in your closet. Why does he say to get alone? Because I don't think we're actually honest unless we're alone. I think we can be. I mean, I think by and large I'm honest with you and all that stuff. But I don't know that we're really honest until we get alone. I won't share a lot about this. Nancy and I and the family watch a show called Alone. Have you guys ever seen that? where they go out into the wilderness with 10 people, they give them a list of things they can do to survive as far as uh, supplies. It's usually like an ax, a tarp. Uh, they can take some sort of hunting thing like a fishing lure or a bone arrow, and most people don't choose the bone arrow because, I don't know, that's hard. And, and uh, we take bets as a family after the first episode of who we think is going to win, and the winner gets to like, choose the dinner and some special dessert and all that stuff. And, we also take bets on how long they'll last. The idea is they only have GoPros. There's nobody with them. They're truly alone with a satellite phone. And the idea is the last man standing, or woman. There's some really capable women on the show, too. And uh, they have no idea where they stand. But it's basically a competition to say, um, you can tap out with a satellite phone, but we won't come and get you until you're the last person standing, the last person to give up. And what you watch are grown adults break. You watch them break. You watch their bodies and their minds break, quite literally. Some of them weeping on the forest floor, crying out to Jesus to save them. What we've learned, too, is it's not the, uh, uh, it's not the physical side of it, although they're starving and it's really hard. It's the emotional side of being alone. We've learned after like several seasons when we're picking our character, or not character, but the person that we think is going to win, is we, we have this list of what do they have to have. And number one on the list is you've got to have nothing else going for you. <laughs> number one is you have to have nobody that loves you or is, care, or, or is like waiting for you to come back. Because you have to already be alone. Because the people, that, the people that have a family or have children or have a stuff like that, they can't take it after about 40 days. And it's interesting after the 40 days that people break about that time period. After about 40 days, if you have someone you love, you cannot take the separation. And they tap out emotionally. Almost, almost nobody in the early part is tapping because they're hungry, even though they are. They're starving. It's because they can't handle being alone. They can't take it. So I think the, Jesus being in the wilderness for those 40 days alone, it, it made me rethink. That show made me rethink of what it was for Jesus in the wilderness alone, being tempted. And... I like to think that Jesus is asking us through this with regards to forgiveness and leading us not to temptation. 
to say, uh, connecting our hearts with his, how he was in the wilderness, how he was in the garden, in our honesty in prayer, say, this is hard. I'm tempted. Gosh, you watch those people on alone where they're almost shivering and looking at that satellite button where they all, all they have to do is press that and they get a hot meal. All they got to do is press that button. Talk about temptation, right? Temptation. And what Jesus is saying is, I've been there. And there's a part of being alone where we can be truly honest and say, dang, this is hard. I don't want this. But I do want your will in my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And I think the thing that he wants us to get is not that temptation and uh, the wilderness, that hard things, is a sign of God's absence, but ironically, the sign of his presence. The idea of being poor in spirit and poor, actually, economically, and being tempted. Jesus is saying, in my upside-down kingdom, you will be tempted to believe that these are signs of me being far, but these are actually signs of me being close. And I love connecting the last thing that Jesus says when he quotes a song of David when he's on the cross. And he's saying his own words, and then he quotes David, which is another song that Jesus says. It's one of his last words, saying, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, in my humanity, I am connecting with you what it's like to be human, which is to feel forsaken. This is our collective experience. So when you feel forsaken by God, it is in this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is saying, I am with you, and that it is finished. And that in the in-between, where you are now and what will be, there will be temptation to believe that this is a sign of my absence, but it's actually a marker of my presence. And there's why Jesus is connected with us forever in humanity, in feeling forsaken. My hope is that we can use this prayer as a daily rhythm is that when Jesus says, this is how you should pray, I think he meant it. And I think he meant all of the nuances and beauty that was within this. I think he meant for us to use it for that. So personally, in, in our family with Nancy and I, there are times where we just pray this prayer. There are times when we, we pray the essence of all of what I've been talking about and connect myself to all of those same themes and forces. There are times when we put this into our own words and just pray through this. I think memorizing this is a, healthy, is a healthy thing to do so that you can have this structure of what it looks like to pray. But if you're starting with saying, gosh, I, I don't know what to pray, I think starting with this and then being alone and then being honest is all Jesus is asking. And the prayer that you think that you should pray is probably very, very much lesser than this. Because this is the prayer that Jesus is asking us to pray. And this is the song that he's using as the motivating force to keep the momentum of his movement that started centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Let me pray for us. Kirsten, you can come on up wherever she is. This is the weird transition where I have to now go into doing this thing. 
Help us to use your artistry and your rhythms and your example in Jesus to be able to orient our lives and our prayers and our motivations around the things that, Jesus, you would have been asking us to cultivate together. Pray that you would use this as a way to help us to love you and love others. We respond now in worship, in our love and adoration of you and what you've done as one very small expression of what it is to worship. And pray, Lord, that you continue to expand our imaginations on what it's like to love others well here at Branches. In the name of Jesus, amen.